Hello, and welcome back to Kraken's Cabin. I hope you're doing well, my friend. So, guess Winter wasn't quite ready to let us go just yet, was it? I've had the snow shovel out there three times this week, just so that I could see the end of the driveway. I saw the snowman you built down by the lake. Fantastic work on the ice. The beanie hat was a very nice touch. I've made some hot chocolates for us. Yours is just there beside the fireplace. So please, take a moment, sit down before we begin. Now, last week, I discussed with you the idea of just turning this place into a bed and breakfast where guests can pay us in stories and tales by this very fireside. And I wanted to give you some time to think about it before I asked, so I have a question for you. Would you like to become one of the managers of the property at this time? Of course, you'll be paid. Family lawyers are going to take care of all of the requirements. Medical, dental, the holidays you need. Of course, you would be staying on site, but your time is yours to continue as you see fit. So what do you say? Wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. Honestly, if you'd said no, I may have changed my mind entirely. and just cancelled the idea of changing this place at all. You're more important than you realise. And twice as much as you think. Now, I'll have my lawyers contact you soon. They'll drop the contract. We'll take it from there. But until then, please, make yourself comfortable and we'll finish our tale of The Great Gatsby by Zelda and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Chapter 7 It was when curiosity about Gatsby was at its highest that the lights in his house failed to go on one Saturday night. And, as obscurely as it had begun, his career in the Trinichalo was over. Only gradually did I become aware that the automobiles which turned expectantly into his drive-stead for just a minute and then drove sulkily away. Wondering if he were sick, I went over to find out. An unfamiliar butler with a villainous face squinted at me suspiciously from the door. Is Mr. Gatsby sick? Nope. After a pause, he added, Sir, in a dilatory, grudging way. I haven't seen him around, and I was rather worried. Tell him Mr. Carraway came over. Who? He demanded rudely. Carraway. Carraway. All right, I'll tell him. Abruptly, he slammed the door. My Finn informed me that Gatsby had dismissed every servant in his house a week ago and replaced them with half a dozen others, who never went into West Egg Village to be bribed by the tradesmen, but ordered moderate supplies over the telephone. The grocery boy reported that the kitchen looked like a pigsty, and the general opinion in the village was that the new people weren't servants at all. Next day, Gatsby called me on the telephone. Going away? I inquired. No, old sport. I hear you fired all your servants. I wanted somebody who wouldn't gossip. Daisy comes over quite often. In the afternoons. So, the whole canvasari had fallen in like hard high said the disapproval in her eyes. There's some people Wolfenstein wanted to do something for. They're all brothers and sisters. Used to run a small hotel. I see. He was calling up at Daisy's request. Would I come to lunch at her house tomorrow? Miss Baker would be there. Half an hour later, Daisy herself telephoned and seemed relieved to find that I was coming. Something was up. And yet I couldn't believe that they would choose this occasion for a scene especially for the rather harrowing scene that Gatsby had outlined in the garden. 
The next day was broiling, almost the last, certainly the warmest of the summer. As my train emerged from the tunnel into sunlight, only the hot whistles of the National Biscuit Company broke the simmering hush at noon. The straw seats of the car hovered on the edge of combustion. The woman next to me perspired delicately for a while into her white shirtwaist, and then, as her newspaper dampened under her fingers, lapsed despairingly into a deep heat with a desolate cry. Pocketbook slammed to the floor. Oh my, she gasped. I picked it up with a weary bend and handed it back to her, holding it at arm's length and by the extreme tip of the corners to indicate that I had no designs upon it. But everyone near me, including the woman, suspected me just the same. Hot, said the conductor to familiar faces. Some weather. Hot, hot, hot. Is it hot enough for you? Is it hot? Is it? My commutation ticket came back to me with a dark stain from his hand. That anyone should cur in this heat whose flushed lips he kissed, whose head made damp the pyjama pocket over his heart. Through the hall of the Buchanan's house blew a faint wind, carrying the sound of the telephone bell at the Gatsby and me as we waited at the door. The master's body, roared the butler into the mouthpiece. I'm sorry, madame, but we couldn't furnish it. It's far too hot to touch this now. What he really said was, Yes, yes, I'll see. He sat down the receiver and came towards us, glistening slightly, to take off our stiff straw hats. Madame expects you in the saloon, he cried, needlessly indicating the direction. In this heat, every extra gesture was an affront to the common store of life. The room, shadowed well with awnings, was dark and cool. Daisy and Jordan lay upon an enormous couch, like silver idols weighing down their own white dresses against the singing breeze of the fans. We can't move, they said together. Jordan's fingers, pressed wide over their tan, rest for a moment in line. And Mr. Thomas Buchanan, the athlete, I inquired. Simultaneously, I heard his voice, gruff, muffled, husky at the hall telephone. Gatsby stood in the centre of the crimson carpet and gazed around with fascinated eyes. Daisy watched him and laughed, her sweet, sadding laugh. A tiny gust of powder rose from her bosom into the air. The rumour is, whispered Jordan, that Tom's girl is on the telephone. We were silent. The voice in the hall rose high with annoyance. Very well then, I won't sell you the car at all. I'm under no obligations to you at all. And as for your bothering me about it at lunchtime, I won't stand that at all. Holding down the receiver, said Daisy cynically. No, he's not, I assured her. It's a bona fide deal. I happen to know about it. Tom flung open the door, blocked its space for a moment with his thick body and hurried into the room. Mr. Gatsby, he put out his broad, flat hand with well-concealed dislike. I'm glad to see you, sir. Nick... Make us a cold drink, cried Daisy. As he left the room again, she got up and went over to Gatsby and pulled his face down, kissing him on the mouth. You know I love you, she murmured. You forget there's a lady's present, said Jordan. Daisy looked around doubtfully. You kiss Nick too. What a low, vulgar girl. I don't care, cried Daisy, and began to clog on the brick fireplace. Then she remembered the heat and sat down guiltily on the couch, just as a freshly laundered nurse sleeping little girl came into the room. Blessed. Precious, she crowned, holding out her arms, 
Come to your own mother that loves you. The child, relinquished by the nurse, rushed across the room and rooted shyly into her mother's dress. The blessed precious. Mother, get powder on your old yellow hair. Stand up now and say, how do you do? Gatsby and I in turn leaned down and took the small reluctant hand. Afterward, he kept looking at the child with surprise. I don't think he ever really believed in its existence before. I got dressed before luncheon, said the child, turning eagerly to Daisy. Well, that's because your mother wanted to show you off. Her face bent into the single wrinkle of a small white neck. You dream, you. You absolute little dream. Yes, admitted the child calmly. And Jordan's got to go on a white dress too. How do you like your mother's friends? Daisy turned her around so that she faced Gatsby. Do you think they're pretty? Where's Daddy? She doesn't look like her father, explained Daisy. She looks like me. She got my hair and shape of the face. Daisy sat back upon the couch. The nurse took a step forward and held out her hand. Come, Pammy. Goodbye, sweetheart. With a reluctant backward glance, the well-disciplined child held her nurse's hand and was pulled out the door, just as Tom came back, receiving four gin rickies that clicked full of ice. Gatsby took up his drink. They certainly look cool, he said with visible tension. We drank in long, greedy swallows. I read somewhere that the sun's getting hotter every year, said Tom genially. It seems that pretty soon the earth's going to fall into the sun. Or, wait a minute, it's just the opposite. The sun's getting colder every year. Come outside, he suggested to Gatsby. I'd like you to have a look at the place. I went with them out to the veranda. On the green sign, stagnant in the heat, one small seal crawled slowly toward the fresher sea. Gatsby's eyes followed it momentarily. He raised his hand and pointed across the bay. I'm right across from you. So we are. Our eyes lifted over to the rose beds and the hot lawn and the weedy refuge of the dog day at Longshore. Slowly, the white wings of the boat moved across the blue, cool limit of the sky. Ahead lay the scalloped ocean and the abandoned Blessed Isles. There's sport for you, said Tom, nodding. I'd like to be out there with him for an hour. We had luncheon in the dining room, darkened too against the heat, and drank down nervous gaiety with the cold ale. What did do with ourselves this afternoon, cried Daisy. And the day after that, and the next thirty years. Don't be morbid, Jordan said. Life starts all over again when it gets crisp in the fall. But it's so hot, insisted Daisy, the verge of tears. Everything's so confused. Let's all go to town. Her voice struggled on through the heat, beating against it, holding its senselessness into forms. I've heard of making a garage out of a stable, Tom was saying to Gatsby, but I'm the first man who ever made a stable out of a garage. Who wants to go to town? demanded Daisy insistently. Gatsby's eyes floated towards her. Ah, she cried. You look so cool. Their eyes met, and they stared together at each other, alone in space. With an effort, she glanced down at the table. You always look so cool, she repeated. She had told him that she loved him, Tom Buchanan saw. He was astounded. His mouth opened a little, and he just looked at Gatsby, and then back at Daisy as if he had just recognised her as someone he knew a long time ago. He resembled the advert of the man, 
she went on innocently. You know, the advertisement of the man. All right, broke in Tom quickly. I'm perfectly willing to go to town. Come on, we're all going into town. He got up, his eyes still flashing between Gatsby and his wife. No one moved. Come on, his temper cracked a little. What's the matter anyhow? If we're going to town, let's start. His hand, trembling with effort at self-control, bored to his lips the last of the glass of his eel. Dizzy's voice got us to our feet, and out on the blazing gravel drive. Are we just going to go? She objected. Like this? Are we going to let anyone smoke a cigarette first? Everybody smoked all through lunch. Oh, let's have fun, she begged him. It's too hot to fuss. He didn't answer. Have it your own way, she said. Come on, Jordan. They went upstairs to get ready, while we three men stood there shuffling the hot pebbles with our feet. A silver curve of the moon hovered already in the western sky. Gatsby started to speak, changed his mind, but not before Tom wheeled and faced him expectantly. Have you got your stables here? asked Gatsby with an effort. About a quarter of a mile down the road. Oh. Pause. I don't see the idea of going to town, broke out Tom savagely. Women get these notions in their heads. Shall we take anything to drink? cried Daisy from an upper window. I'll get some whiskey, answered Tom. He went inside. Gatsby turned to me rigidly. I can't say anything in this household sport. She's got an indistinct voice, I remarked. It's full of... I hesitated. Her voice is full of money, he said suddenly. And that was it. I never understood before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in it. The jingle of it. The symbol song of it. High in the white palace, the king's daughter, the golden girl. Tom came out of the house wrapping a quart bottle in a towel, followed by Daisy and Jordan wearing small, tight hats of metallic cloth and carrying light capes over their arms. Shall we go in my car? suggested Gatsby. He felt the hot green leather of the seat. I ought to have left it in the shade. Is it standard shift? demanded Tom. Yes. Well, you take my coupe and let me drive your car to town. The suggestion was distasteful to Gatsby. I don't think there's much gas, he objected. Plenty of gas, said Tom boisterously. He looked at the gauge. And if it runs out, I can stop at a drugstore. You can buy anything at a drugstore nowadays. A pause followed this apparently pointless remark. Daisy looked at Tom frowning, an indefinable expression, a once definitely unfamiliar and vaguely recognisable, as if I'd only just described it in words, and it passed over Gatsby's face. Come on, Daisy, said Tom, pressing her with his hand towards Gatsby's car. I'll take you in this circus wagon. He opened the door, but she moved out from the circle of his arm. You take Nick and Jordan. We'll follow you in the coupe. She walked close to Gatsby, touching his coat with her hands. Jordan and Tom and I got into the front seat of Gatsby's car. Tom pushed the unfamiliar gears tentatively, and we shot off in the oppressive heat, leaving them out of sight behind. Did you see that? demanded Tom. See what? He looked at me keenly, realising that Jordan and I must have known all along. You think I'm pretty dumb, don't you? He suggested. Perhaps I am. But I have a... 
almost a second sight sometimes that tells me what to do. Maybe you don't believe that, but science... He paused. The immediate congeniality overtook him. Pulled him back from the edge of theoretical abyss. I've made a small investigation of this fellow, he continued. I could have gone deeper if I'd known. Do you mean you've been to a medium? Inquired Jordan, humorously. What? Confused, he started us as we laughed. A medium? About Gatsby? About Gatsby? No, I haven't. I said I'd been making a small investigation of his past. And you found that he was an Oxford man, said Jordan, helpfully. An Oxford man? He was incredulous. Like hell he is. He wears a pink suit. Nevertheless, he is an Oxford man. Oxford, New Mexico, snorted Tom contemptuously, or something like that. Listen, Tom, if you're such a snob, why did you invite him to lunch? demanded Jordan crossly. Daisy invited him. She knew him before we were married. God knows where. We were all irritable now with the fading eel, and aware of it, we drove for a while in silence. Then as Dr. T.J. Ecclesburg's faded eyes came into sight down along the road, we remembered Gatsby's caution about gasoline. We've got enough to get us to town, said Tom. But there's a garage right here, objected Jordan. I don't want to get stalled in this bacon heat. Tom threw on both brakes impatiently, and we slid to an abrupt, dusty stop under Wilson's sign. After a moment, the proprietor emerged from the interior of his establishment, gazed hollow-eyed at the bar. Let's have some gas cried Tom roughly. What do you think we stopped for? Do you admire the view? I'm sick, said Wilson, without moving. Been sick all day. What's the matter? I'm all run down. Well, shall I help myself? Tom demanded. You sounded well enough on the phone. With an effort, Wilson left the shade in support of the doorway and, breathing hard, unscrewed the cap of the tank. In the sunlight, his face was green. I don't mean to interrupt your lunch, he said, but I need money pretty bad, and I was wondering when you were going to do with your old car. How do you like this one? inquired Tom. I bought it last week. It's a nice yellow one, said Wilson, as he strained the handle. Like to buy it? Big chance, Wilson smiled faintly. No, but I could make some money on the other. What do you want the money for, all of a sudden? I've been here too long. I want to get away. My wife and I want to go west. Your wife does, exclaimed Tom, startled. She's been talking about it for ten years. He rested a moment against the pump shaded in his eyes. And now she's going whether she wants to or not. I'm going to get her away. The coupe flashed past us with a flurry of dust and the flash of a waving hand. What do I owe you? demanded Tom harshly. I just got wised up to something funny the last few days, remarked Wilson. That's why I want to get away. That's why I've been bothering you about the car. What do I owe you? Dollar twenty. The restless beating heat was beginning to confuse me, and I had a bad moment there before I realised that so far his suspicions had not lighted on Tom. He had discovered that Myrtle had some sort of life apart from him in another world, and the shock had made him physically sick. I started him in, then at back at Tom, who made a parallel discovery less than an hour before and it occurred to me that there was no difference between men in intelligence or race, so profound as the difference between the sick and the well. Wilson was so sick that he looked guilty. Unforgivably guilty. As if he'd just got some poor girl with a child. I'll let you have that car, said Tom. 
I'll send it over tomorrow afternoon. That locality was always vaguely disquieting, even in the broad glare of the afternoon. Now I turned my head as though I'd been warned of something behind. Over the ash heaps, the giant eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg kept their vigil. But I perceived, after a moment, that other eyes were regarding us with particular intensity from less than 20 feet away. In one of the windows over the garage, the curtains had been drawn and moved aside a little. And Myrtle Wilson was peering down at the car. So engrossed was she that she had no consciousness of being observed. And one emotion over the other crept into her face like objects into a slowly developing picture. Her expression was curiously familiar. It was an expression I'd often seen on women's faces. But on Myrtle Wilson's face it seemed purposeless and inexplicable. Until I realised that just her eyes, wide with jealous terror, were fixed not on Tom, but on Jordan Baker, whom she took to be his wife. There's no confusion like the confusion of his simple mind. And as we drove away, Tom was feeling the hot whips of panic. His wife and his mistress, until an hour ago secure and inviolate, were slipping precipitously from his control. Instinct made him step onto the accelerator with double purpose of overtaking Daisy and leaving Wilson behind, and we sped along towards the story at 50 miles an hour, until, after the spidery girders of the elevated, we came inside of the easy-going blue coupe. Those big movies around 50th Street are cool, suggested Jordan. I love New York on a summer afternoon when everyone's away. There's something very sensuous about it, overripe, as if all sorts of funny fruits were going to fall into your hands. The word sensuous had the effect of further disquieting Tom, but before he could invent a protest, the coupe that came to a stop, and Daisy signalled us to draw up alongside. Where are we going? she cried. How about the movies? Too hot, she complained. You go. We'll ride around and meet you after. With an effort, her wit rose faintly. We'll meet you in some quarter. I'll be the man smoking two cigarettes. We can't argue about it here, Tom said impatiently, as a truck gave out a cursing whistle behind us. You, follow me to the south side of Central Park, front of the plaza. Several times he turned his head and looked back for their car, and if the traffic delayed then he slowed up until they came back into sight. I think he was afraid that they would dart down a side street and out of his life forever. But they didn't, and we all took the less inexplicable step of engaging the parlour of a suite in the plaza hotel. The prolonged and tumultuous argument that ended by herding us into that room eludes me. Though I have a sharp physical memory that, in the course of it, my underwear kept climbing like a damp snake around my legs, and intermittent beads of sweat raced cool across my back. The notion originated with Daisy's suggestion that we hire five bathrooms and take cold baths, and then assume more tangible form as a place to have a mint julep. Each of us said over and over that that was a crazy idea. We all talked at once to a baffled clerk and thought, or pretended to think, they were being very funny. The room was large and stifling, and though it was already four o'clock, opening the windows admitted only a gust of hot shrubbery from the park. Daisy went to the mirror, stood with her back to us, fixing her hair. It's just a swell sweet, whispered Jordan respectfully, and everyone laughed. Open another window, commanded Daisy, without turning round. There aren't any more. Well, we'd better telephone for an axe. The thing to do is to forget about the heat, said Tom impatiently. 
You make it ten times worse by crabbing on about it. He unrolled the bottle of whiskey from the towel and gave it back to the table. Why not let her alone, old sport? remarked Gatsby. You're the one that wanted to come to town. There was a moment of silence. The telephone book slipped from its nail and splashed to the floor, whereupon Jordan whispered, Excuse me. But this time no one laughed. I'll pick it up, I offered. I've got it. Gatsby examined the parted string, muttered, Hmm, in an interested way, and tossed the book onto a chair. That's a great expression of yours, isn't it? said Tom sharply. What is? All this old sport business. Where'd you pick that up? Now see here, Tom, said Daisy, turning round from the mirror. If you're going to make personal remarks, I won't stay here a minute. Call up and order some ice for the mint julep. As Tom took up the receiver, the compressed heat exploded into sound, and we were listening to the portentous chords of Melancholy's wedding march from the ballroom below. Imagine marrying anybody in this heat, cried Jordan dismally. Still, I was married in the middle of June, Daisy remembered. Louisville in June. Somebody fainted. Who was it that fainted, Tom? Biloxi, he answered shortly. A man named Biloxi. Blocks, Biloxi, and he made boxes, that's a fact. And he was from Biloxi, Tennessee. They carried him into my house, pended Jordan, because we lived just two doors from the church. And he stayed three weeks, until Daddy told him that he had to get out. The day after that, Daddy died. After a moment, she added, there wasn't any connection. I used to know a Bill Biloxi from Memphis, I remarked. That was his cousin. I knew the whole family history before he left. He gave me an aluminum butter that I use today. The music had died down as the ceremony began. Now a long cheer floated in at the window, followed by intermittent cries of, Yeah! And finally, by a burst of jazz, that the dancing began. We're getting old, said Daisy. If we were young, we'd rise and dance. Remember Biloxi? Jordan warned her. Where'd you know him, Tom? Biloxi? Concentrated with an effort. I didn't know him. He was a friend of Daisy's. He was not, she denied. I'd never seen him before. He came down in the private car. Well, he said he knew you. He said he was raised in Louisville. As a bird brought him round at the last minute and asked if we had room for him. Jordan smiled. He was probably bumming his way home. He told me that he was the president of your class at Yale. Tom and I looked at each other blankly. Biloxi? Well, first place, we didn't have any president. Gatsby's foot beat a short, restless tattoo and Tom eyed him suddenly. By the way, Mr. Gatsby, I understand you're an Oxford man. Not exactly. Oh yes, I understand you went to Oxford. Yes, I went there. A pause. Then Tom's voice, incredulous and insulting. He must have gone there about the time Biloxi went to New Haven. Another pause. Waiter knocked and came in with crushed mint and ice. The silence was unbroken by his thank you and the soft closing of the door. This tremulous detail was to be cleared up at last. I told you that I went there, said Gatsby. I heard you, but I'd like to know when. It was in 1919. I only stayed for five months. That's why I can't really call myself an Oxford man. Tom glanced around to see if we mirrored his unbelief. 
but we were all looking at Gatsby. It was an opportunity that gave to some of the officers after the armistice, he continued. We could go to any of the universities in England or France. I wanted to get up and slap him on the back. I had one of those renewals of complete faith in him that I'd experienced before. Daisy rose, smiling faintly, and went to the table. Open the whiskey, Tom, she ordered, and I'll make you a mint julep. Then you won't sound so stupid to yourself. Look at the mint. Wait a minute, snapped Tom. I want to ask Mr. Gatsby one more question. Go on, Gatsby said politely. What kind of a row are you trying to cause in my house anyhow? They were out in the open at last and Gatsby was content. He isn't causing a row. Daisy looked desperately from one to the other. You're causing a row. Please have a little self-control. Self-control, repeated Tom incredulously. I suppose the latest thing is to sit back and let Mr. Nobody from nowhere make love to your wife. Well, if that's the idea, you can count me out. Nowadays, people begin by sneering their family life and family institutions, and next they'll throw everything overboard and have intermarriage between blacks and whites. Flushed with his impassioned gibberish, he saw himself standing alone on the last barrier of civilization. We're all white here, murmured Jordan. I know I'm not very popular. I don't give big parties. I suppose you've got to make your house into a pigsty in order to have any friends in the modern world. Angry as I was, as we all were, I was tempted to laugh whenever he opened his mouth. The transition from libertine to prig was so complete. I've got something to tell you, old sport, began Gatsby, but Daisy guessed at his intention. Please don't, she interrupted helplessly. Please, let's all just go home. Why don't we all go home? That's a good idea. I got up. Come on, Tom. Nobody wants a drink. I want to know what Mr. Gatsby has to tell me. Your wife doesn't love you, said Gatsby. She's never loved you. She loves me. You must be crazy, exclaimed Tom automatically. Gatsby sprang to his feet, vivid with excitement. She's never loved you. Do you hear? cried. She only married you because I was poor and she was tired of waiting for me. It was a terrible mistake, but in her heart she never loved anyone except me. At this point, Jordan and I tried to go, but Tom and Gatsby insisted with competitive firmness that we remain, as though neither of them had anything to conceal, and it would be a privilege to partake vicariously of their emotions. Sit down, Daisy. Tom's voice groped unsuccessfully for the paternal note. What's been going on? I want to hear all about it. I told you what's been going on, said Gatsby going on for five years. He didn't know. Tom turned to Daisy sharply. You've been seeing this fellow for five years? Not seeing, said Gatsby. No, we couldn't meet. But both of us loved each other all that time, old sport, and you didn't know. I used to laugh sometimes, but there was no laughter in his eyes. To think that you didn't know. Oh, that's all. Tom tapped his thick fingers together like a clergyman and leaned back in his chair. You're crazy, he exploded. I can't speak about that what happened five years ago because I didn't know Daisy then. But I'll be damned if I see how you got within a mile of her, unless you brought the groceries to the back door. But all the rest of it's a goddamn lie. Daisy loved me when she married me and she loves me now. No, said Gatsby, shaking his head. She does, though. The trouble is that sometimes she gets foolish ideas in her head and doesn't know what she's doing. He nodded sagely. And what's more... I love Daisy too. 
Once in a while, I'll go off on a spree and make a fool of myself, but I always come back. And in my heart, I love her all the same. You're revolting, said Daisy. She turned to me and her voice, dropping an octave lower, filled the room with thrilling scorn. Do you know why we left Chicago? I'm surprised that they didn't treat you to the story of that little spree. Gatsby walked over and stood beside her. Daisy, that's all over now, he said earnestly. It doesn't matter anymore. Just tell him the truth, that you never loved him, and it's all wiped out forever. She looked at him blindly. Why? How could I love him? Possibly. You never loved him. She hesitated. Her eyes fell on Jordan and me with a sort of appeal, as though she realised at last what she was doing, and as though she never, all along, intended doing anything at all. But it was done now. It was too late. I never loved him, she said, but with perceptible reluctance. Not that Capiolani? demanded Tom suddenly. No. From the ballroom beneath, muffled and suffocating cords were drifting up on hot waves of air. Not that day I carried you down from Punchbowl down to keep your shoes dry. There was a husky tenderness in his tone. Teasy. Please don't. Her voice was cold, but the rancor was gone from it. She looked at Gatsby. There, Jay, she said. But her hand, as she tried to light a cigarette, was trembling. Suddenly she threw the cigarette and the burning match onto the carpet. Oh, you want too much, she cried to Gatsby. I love you now. Isn't that enough? Can't help what's past. She began to sob helplessly. I did love him once, but I loved you too. Gatsby's eyes opened and closed. You loved me too? He repeated. Even that's a lie, said Tom savagely. She didn't know you were alive. Why? There's things between Daisy and me that you'll never know. Things that neither of us can ever forget. The words seemed to bite physically into Gatsby. I want to speak to Daisy alone, he insisted. She's all excited now. Even alone, I can't say I never loved Tom, she admitted in a pitiful voice. It wouldn't be true. Of course it wouldn't, agreed Tom. She turned to her husband. As if that mattered to you, he said. Of course it matters. I'm going to take better care of you from now on. You don't understand, said Gatsby, with a touch of panic. You're not going to take care of her anymore. I'm not. Tom opened his eyes wide and laughed. He could afford to control himself now. And why is that? Daisy's leaving you. Nonsense. I am, though, she said, with a visible effort. She's not leaving me. Tom's words suddenly leaned down over Gatsby. Certainly not for a common swindler, who'd have the steel ring he put on her finger. I won't stand this, cried Daisy. Oh, please, let's go out. Who are you, anyhow? broke out Tom. You're one of that bunch that hangs around with Mary Wolfsheep. That much I happen to know. I made a little investigation into your affairs. And I'll carry it further tomorrow. You can suit yourself about that old sport, said Gatsby steadily. If I know where your drugstores were, he turned to us and spoke rapidly. He and this Wolfsheen bought up a lot of side street drugstores here and there in Chicago and sold green alcohol over the counter. That's one of his little stunts. I picked him for a bootlegger the first time I ever saw him and I wasn't far wrong. What about it? said Gatsby politely. 
I guess your friend Walter Chase wasn't too proud to come in on it. And you left him in the lurch, didn't you? You let him go to jail for over a month over in New Jersey. But you ought to hear what Walter says on the subject of you. Came to us dead broke. He was very glad to pick up some money, old sport. Don't you call me old sport, cried Tom. Gatsby said nothing. Walter could have you up on the betting laws too, but Wolfsheim scared him into shutting his mouth. That unfamiliar yet recognisable look was back again in Gatsby's face. That drugstore business was just small change, continued Tom slowly. But you've got something on now that Walter's afraid to tell me about. I glanced at Daisy, who was staring terrified between Gatsby and her husband, and at Jordan, who had begun to balance an invisible but absorbent object on the tip of her chin. Then I turned back to look at Gatsby, and was startled at his expression. He looked, and this is said in all contempt for the babbled slander of his garden, as if he had killed a man. For a moment, the set of his face could be described in just that fantastic way. It passed, and they began to talk excitedly to Daisy, denying everything, defending his name against accusations that had not been made. But with every word, she was drawn further and further into herself, so that he gave up, and only the dead dream fought on as the afternoon slipped away, trying to touch what was no longer tangible, struggling unhappily and despairingly towards the lost voice across the room. And the voice begged him again to go. Please, Tom, I can't stand this anymore. Her frightened eyes told that whatever intentions, whatever courage she had, were definitely gone. You two start on home, Daisy, said Tom, in Mr. Gatsby's car. She looked at Tom, alarmed now, but he insisted with magnanimous scorn. Go on, he won't annoy you. I think he realises this presumptuous little flirtation is over. They were gone, without a word, snapped out, made accidental, isolated like ghosts, even from our pity. After a moment, Tom got up and began wrapping the unopened bottle of whiskey in the towel. Want any of this stuff? Jordan? Nick? I didn't answer. Nick? He asked again. What? Want any? No, I just remembered that today's my birthday. I was 30. Before me stretched the portentous, menacing road of a new decade. It was seven o'clock when we got into the coop with him and started for Long Island. Tom talked incessantly, exulting and laughing, but his voice was as remote from Jordan and me as the foreign clamour on the sidewalk, with the tumult of the elevated overhead. Human sympathy has its limits and we were content to let all their tragic arguments fade with the city lights behind us. 30. The promise of a decade of loneliness, a thinning list of single men to know, a thinning briefcase of enthusiasm, thinning her. But there was Jordan beside me, who, unlike Daisy, was too wise ever to carry the well-forgotten dreams from each to each. As we passed over the dark bridge, her wan face fell easily against my coat's shoulder and formidable stroke of thirty died away, with the reassuring pressure of her hand. So we drove on, towards death, through the cooling twilight. The young Greek, Achilles, who ran the coffee joint beside the ash heaps, was principal witness at the inquest. He had slept through the heat until after five, when he strolled over to the garage and found George Wilson sick in his office really sick. 
pale as his own pale hair and shaking all over. Michaelis advised him to go to bed, but Wilson refused, saying that he'd miss a lot of business if he did. And while his neighbour was trying to persuade him, a violent racket broke out overhead. I've got my wife locked up in there, explained Wilson calmly. She's going to stay there until the day after tomorrow and then we're going to move away. Michaelis was astonished. They'd been neighbours for four years and Wilson never seemed faintly capable of such a statement. Generally, he was one of those worn-out men when he wasn't working. He sat on the chair in the doorway and stared at the people in the cars that passed along the road. When anyone spoke to him, he invariably laughed in an agreeable, colourless way. He was his wife's man and not his own. So naturally, Michaelis tried to find out what had happened. But Wilson wouldn't say a word. Instead, he began to throw curious, suspicious glances at his visitor and ask him what he'd been doing at certain times on certain days. Just as the latter was getting uneasy, some workmen came past the door bound for the restaurant. Michaelis took the opportunity to get away, intending to come back later. But he didn't. He supposed he forgot to, that's all. When he came outside again, a little after seven, he was reminded of the conversation because he heard Mrs. Wilson's voice, loud and scolding downstairs in the garage. Beat me, he heard her cry. Throw me down and beat me, you dirty little coward. A moment later, she rushed out into the dusk, waving her hands and shouting. Before he could move from his door, the business was over. The death car, as the newspapers called it, didn't stop. Came out of the gathering darkness, wavered tragically for a moment, and then disappeared around the next bend. He wasn't even sure of its colour. He told the first policeman that it was like green. The other car, the one going toward New York, came to rest a hundred yards beyond, and its driver hurried back to where Myrtle Wilson, her life violently extinguished, knelt in the road and mingled her thick, dark blood with the dust. Michaelis and this man reached her first. But when they tore open her shirtwaist, still damp with perspiration, they saw that her left breast was swinging loose like a flap and there was no need to listen for the heart beneath. The mouth was wide open and ripped a little at the corners, as though she had choked a little and given up the tremendous vitality that she had stored for so long. We saw the three or four automobiles in the crowd when we were still some distance away. Wreck, said Tom. That's good. We'll still have a little business at last. He slowed down, but still without any intention of stopping, until, as we came nearer, the hushed, intent faces of the people at the garage door made him automatically put on the brakes. We'll take a look, he said doubtfully. Just a look. Became aware now of a hollow, wailing sound which issued incessantly from the garage. A sound which, as we got out of the coupe and walked towards the door, resolved itself into the words, Oh my God, uttered over and over and over again in a gasping moan. There's some bad trouble here, said Tom excitedly. He reached up on his tiptoes and peered over a circle of heads into the garage, which was lit only by the yellow light in a swinging metal basket overhead. Then he made a harsh sound in his throat, and with a violent thrusting movement of his powerful arms he pushed his way through the crowd. The circle closed up again with a returning murmur of expectation. It was a minute before I could see anything at all. Then new arrivals deranged the scene, and Jordan and I were pushed suddenly inside. Myrtle Wilson's body, wrapped in a blanket, and then in another blanket, as though she'd suffered from a chill in the hot heat, lay on a work table by the wall, and Tom, with his back to us, 
was bending over it, motionless. Next to him stood a motorcycle policeman, taking down names with such sweat and correction in a little book. At first I couldn't find the source of the high, groaning words that echoed clamorously through the burr garage. And then I saw Wilson, standing on the raised threshold of his office, swaying back and forth and holding onto the doorposts with both hands. Some man was talking to him in a low voice and attempting, from time to time, to lay a hand on his shoulder. But Wilson neither heard nor saw. His eyes would drop slowly from the swinging light to the laden table by the wall, and then jerk back to the light again. And he gave out incessantly his high, horrible call. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh god. Oh my god. Presently, Tom lifted his head with a jerk. And after staring around the garage with glazed eyes, addressed a mumbled, incoherent remark to the policeman. M-A-V, the policeman was saying. Oh, no, R, corrected the man. M-A-V-R-O. Listen to me, muttered Tom fiercely. R, said the policeman. O. G. He looked up as Tom's broad hand felt sharply on his shoulder. What do you want, fella? What happened? That's what I want to know. Auto hitter. Instantly killed. Instantly killed, repeated Tom, staring. She ran out of the road. Son of a bitch didn't even stop the car. There were two cars, said Michaelis. One coming, one going. See? Going where? Asked the policeman keenly. One was going each way. Well, she... His hand rose towards the blankets, but stopped halfway and fell back to his side. She ran out, and there was one coming from New York, knocked right into her, going 30 or 40 miles an hour. What's the name of this place here? demanded the officer. Hasn't got any name. A pale, well-dressed man stepped near. It was a yellow car, he said. Big yellow car. New. See the accident? asked the policeman. No. The car passed down the road, going faster than 40. Maybe going 50, 60. Come here and let me have your name. Look out now. I want to get that guy's name. Some words of this conversation must have reached Wilson, swaying in the office door. For suddenly a new theme found voice among his grasping cries. You don't have to tell me what kind of car it was. I know what kind of car it was. Watching Tom. I saw the weight of muscle on the back of his shoulder tighten under his coat. He walked quickly over to Wilson and, standing in front of him, seized him firmly by the upper arms. You've got to pull yourself together, he said, with soothing gruffness. Wilson's eyes fell upon Tom. He started up on his tiptoes and then would have collapsed to his knees had not Tom held him up tight. Listen, said Tom, shaking him a little. I just got here a few minutes ago from New York. I was bringing you that coupe we've been talking about. That yellow car I was driving this afternoon wasn't mine. Do you hear? I haven't seen it all afternoon. Only the new gentleman and I were dear enough to hear what he'd said. But the policeman caught something in the tongue and looked over with truculent eyes. What's all this? He demanded. I'm a friend of his. Tom turned his head but kept his eyes firm on Wilson's body. He says he knows the car did it. It was a yellow car. Some dim impulse moved the policeman to look suspiciously at Tom. And what colour is your car? It's a blue car. Coupe. We come straight from New York, I said. Someone who'd been driving a little behind us confirmed this and the policeman turned away. Now, if you'll let me have the name again. Correct. 
Picking up Wilson like a doll, Tom carried him to the office, set him down in a chair, came back. If somebody will come here and sit with him, he snapped authoritatively. He watched while the two men standing closest glanced at each other and went unwillingly into the room. Then Tom shut the door on them and came down to the single step, his eyes avoiding the table. As he passed close to me, he whispered, Let's get out. Self-consciously, with his authoritative arms breaking the way, we pushed through the still-gathering crowd, passing a hurried doctor, case in hand, who'd been sent for in the Wild Hope half an hour ago. Tom drove slowly until we were beyond the bend. Then his foot came down hard, and the coupe raced along through the night. In a little while I heard a low, husky sob, and saw that the tears were overflowing down his face. God damn hard, he whispered. He didn't even stop his car. The Buchanan's house floated suddenly towards us through the dark, rustling trees. Tom stopped beside the porch and looked up at the second floor, where the two windows bloomed with light among the vines. Daisy's home, he said. As we got out of the car, he glanced at me and frowned slightly. I'll have dropped you in West Egg, Nick. There's nothing we can do tonight. A change had come over him, and he spoke gravely, and with decision. As we walked across the moonlight gravel to the porch, he disposed of the situation in a few brisk phrases. I'll telephone for a taxi to take you home. And while you're waiting, you and Jordan better go into the kitchen and have you get some supper. If you want, I... You open the door. Come in. No, thanks. But I'd be glad if you could order me the taxi. I'll wait outside. Jordan would put her hand on my arm. Won't you come in, Nick? No, thanks. I was feeling a little sick and I wanted to be alone. But Jordan lingered for a moment more. It's only half past nine, she said. I'd be damned if I'd go in. I had enough of all of them for one day. And suddenly that included Jordan too. She must have seen something in this in my expression, for she turned abruptly away and ran up the porch steps into the house. I sat down for a few minutes with my head in my hands, until I heard the phone taken up inside and the butler's voice calling a taxi. Then I walked slowly down the drive away from the house, intending to wait by the gate. I hadn't gone twenty yards when I heard my name and Gatsby stepped from between two bushes into the path. I must have felt pretty weird by that time because I could think of nothing except the luminosity of his pink suit under the moon. What are you doing? I inquired. Just standing here, sport. Somehow that seemed like a despicable occupation. For all I knew, he was going to rob the house in a moment. I wouldn't have been surprised to see sinister faces. The faces of Wolfsheim's people, behind him in the dark shrubbery. Did you see any trouble on the road? He asked for after a minute. Yes, he hesitated. Was she killed? Yes. I thought so. I told Daisy I thought so. It's better that the shock should all come at once. She stood it pretty well. He spoke as if Daisy's reaction was the only thing that mattered. I got to West Egg by a side road, he went on. I left the car in my garage. I don't think anybody saw us, but of course I can't be sure. I disliked him so much by this time that I didn't find it necessary to tell him that he was wrong. Who was the woman? he inquired. Her name was Wilson. Her husband owns the garage. How the devil did it happen? Well, I tried to swing the wheel. He broke off. And suddenly I guessed at the truth. Was Daisy driving? Yes. 
he said after a moment. But of course I'll say I was. You see, when we left New York, she was very nervous and she thought it would steady her to drive. And then this woman rushed out at us just as we were passing a car coming the other way. It all happened in a minute, but it seemed to me that she wanted to speak to us. Thought we were somebody that she knew. Well, first Daisy turned away from the woman toward the other car, and then she lost her nerve and turned back. The second my hand reached the wheel, I felt the shock. It must have killed her instantly. It ripped her open. Don't tell me, old sport, he winced. Anyhow, Daisy stepped on it. I tried to make her stop, but she couldn't. So I pulled on the emergency brake. Then she fell over into my lap and I drove on. She'll be all right tomorrow, he said presently. I'm just going to wait here and see if she tries to bother her about that unpleasantness this afternoon. She's locked herself into her room and if he tries any brutality, she's going to turn the light on and off again. He won't touch her, I said. He's not thinking about her. I don't trust him, old sport. How long are you going to wait? All night, if necessary. Anyhow, till they all go to bed. A new point of view occurred to me. Suppose Tom found out the Daisy had been driving. He might think he saw a connection in it. He might think anything. I looked at the house. There were two or three bright windows downstairs and the pink glow from Daisy's room on the ground floor. You wait here, I said. I'll see if there's any sign of a commotion. I walked back along the border of the lawn, traversed the gravel softly, and tiptoed up the veranda steps. The drawing room curtains were open and I saw the room was empty. Crossing the porch where we dined that June night, three months before, I came to a small rectangle of light, which I guessed was the pantry window. The blind was drawn, but I found a rift at the sill. Daisy and Tom were sitting opposite each other at the kitchen table, with a plate of cold fried chicken between them, and two bottles of ale. He was talking intently across the table ladder, and in his earnestness his hand had fallen upon and covered her own. Once in a while she looked up at him and nodded in agreement. They weren't happy, and neither of them had touched the chicken or the eel, and yet they weren't unhappy either. There was an unmistakable air of natural intimacy about the picture, and anybody would have said that they were conspiring together. As I tiptoed from the porch, I heard my taxi feeling its way across the dark road and towards the house. Gatsby was waiting where I'd left him in the drive. Is it all quiet up there? he asked, anxiously. Yes, it's all quiet, I hesitated. You better come home and get some sleep. He shook his head. I want to wait here till Daisy goes to bed. Good night, old sport. He put his hands in his coat pockets and turned back eagerly to the scrutiny of the house, as though my presence marred the sacredness of the vigil. So I walked away and left him standing there in the moonlight, watching over nothing. Chapter 8 I couldn't sleep all night. A foghorn was groaning incessantly on the sand, and I tossed half-sick between grotesque reality and savage, frightening dreams. Toward dawn, I heard a taxi go up Gatsby's drive, and immediately I jumped out of bed and began to dress. I felt that I had something to tell him, something to warn him about, and morning would be too late. Crossing his lawn, I saw that his front door was still open, and he was leaning against the table in the hall heavy with dejection or sleep. Nothing happened, he said wanely. I waited, and about four o'clock she came to the window and stood there for a minute, and then turned out the light. His house never seemed so enormous to me as it did that night, 
when we hunted through the great rooms for cigarettes. We pushed aside curtains that were like pavilions and felt over the innumerable feed of dark walls for electric light switches. Once I tumbled with a sort of splash upon the keys of the ghostly piano. There was an inexplicable amount of dust everywhere and the rooms were musty, as though they hadn't been aired for many days. I found the humidor on an unfamiliar table with two still, dry cigarettes inside. Throwing open the French windows of the drawing room, we sat smoking out in the darkness. You ought to go away, I said. It's pretty certain that they'll trace your car. Go away now, old sport. Go to Atlantic City for a week, or up to Montreal. He wouldn't consider it. He couldn't possibly leave Daisy until he knew what she was going to do. He was clutching at some last hope, but I couldn't bear to shake him free. It was this night that he told me the strange story of his youth with Dan Cody. Told it to me because Jay Gatsby had broken up like glass against Tom's hard malice, and the long secret extravaganza was played out. I think he would have acknowledged anything now, without reserve, but he wanted to talk about Daisy. She was the first nice girl that he'd ever known. In various unrevealed capacities, he'd always come into contact with such people, but always with an indisconcernable barbed wire between. He found her excitingly desirable. He went to her house, at first with other officers from Camp Taylor, and then alone. It amazed him. He had never been in such a beautiful house before. But what gave it an air of breathless intensity was that Daisy lived there. It was as casual a thing to her as his tent out of camp was to him. There was a right mystery about it, a hint of bedrooms upstairs more beautiful and cool than any other bedrooms, of gay and radiant activities taking place through its corridors, and of romances that were not musty, led away already in lavender but fresh and breathing, and redolent of this year's shining water cars and of dances whose flowers were scarcely withered. Yet excited him too, that many men had already loved Daisy. It increased her value in his eyes. He felt her presence all about the house, pervading the air within the shades and echoes of still vibrant emotions. But he knew that he was in Daisy's house by a colossal accident. However glorious might be his future as Jay Gatsby, he was a present, a penniless young man without a past, and at any moment the invisible cloak of his uniform might slip from his shoulders. So he made the most of his time. He took what he could get, ravenously and unscrupulously. Eventually, because Daisy won still October night, took her because he had no real right to touch her hand. He might have despised himself, for he'd certainly taken her under false pretenses. I don't mean that he had traded on his phantom millions, but he had deliberately given Daisy a sense of security. He let her believe that he was a person from much the same strata as herself, that he was fully able to take care of her. As a matter of fact, he had no such facilities. He had no comfortable family standing behind him, and he was liable at the whim of an impersonal government to be blown anywhere about the world. But he didn't despise himself, and it didn't turn out as he had imagined. He had intended, probably, to take what he could and just go. But now he found that he had committed himself to the following of a grail. He knew that Daisy was extraordinary, but he didn't realise just how extraordinary a nice girl could be. She vanished into a rich house, into a rich, full life. Leaving Gatsby, nothing. He felt married to her, that was all. When they met again two days later, it was Gatsby who was breathless, who was, somehow, betrayed. Porch was bright with the bought luxury of starshine, 
The wicker of settee squeaked fashionably as she turned toward him and he kissed her curious and lovely mouth. She had caught a cold, and it made her voice huskier and more charming than ever. Gatsby was overwhelmingly aware of the youth and mystery, the wealth and prisons and preserves, of the freshness of many clothes, and of Daisy, gleaming like silver, safe and proud amongst the hot struggles of the purr. Can't describe to you how surprised I was to find out I loved her own sport. I even hoped for a while that she'd throw me over, but she didn't, because she was in love with me too. She thought I knew a lot because I knew different things from her. Well, there I was, way off my ambitions, getting deeper in love every minute, and all of a sudden I didn't care. What was the use of doing great things if I could have a better time telling her what I was going to do? On the last afternoon before he went abroad, he sat with Daisy in his arms for a long, silent time. It was a cold fall day, with fire in the room and her cheeks flushed. Now and then she moved and he changed his arm a little, and once he kissed her dark shining hair. But the afternoon had made them tranquil for a while, as if to give them a deep memory for the long parting the day next day promised. They'd never been closer in their month of love, nor communicated more profoundly one with another than when she brushed her silent lips against his coat shoulder, or when he touched the end of her fingers, gently, as though she were asleep. He did extraordinarily well in the war. He was a captain before he went to the front, and following the Argoing battles, he got his majority in the command of the divisional machine guns. After the armistice, he tried frantically to get home, but some complication or misunderstanding sent him to Oxford instead. He was worried now, there was a quality of nervous despair in Daisy's letters. She didn't see why he couldn't come home. She was feeling like the pressure of the outside world, and she wanted to see him and feel his presence beside her, and be reassured that she was doing the right thing after all. For Daisy was young, and her artificial world was redolent of orchids and the pleasant, cheerful snobbery, and the orchestras which set the rhythm of the year, strumming up the sadness and the suggestiveness of life in new chains. All night the saxophones wailed the hopeless comments of the Beale Street Blues, while a hundred pairs of golden and silver slippers shuffled in the shining dust. At the Grey TR there was always rooms that throbbed incessantly with the low, sweet fever, while fresh faces drifted here and there like rose petals blown by the sad horns around the floor. Through this twilight universe Daisy began to move again with the season. Suddenly she was again keeping half a dozen dates a day with half a dozen men, and drowsing to sleep at dawn with the beads and chiffon of an evening dress tangled among the dying orchids of the floor beside her bed. And all the time something within her was crying for a decision. She wanted her life shaped now, immediately, and the decision must be made by some force, of love, money, of unquestionable practicality, that was close at hand. That force took the shape in the middle of spring with the arrival of Tom Buchanan. There was a wholesome bulkiness about his person and his position, and Daisy was flattered. Doubtless, there was a certain struggle and a certain relief. The letter reached Gatsby while he was still at Oxford. It was dawn now on the Long Island when we went about opening the rest of the windows upstairs, filling the house with grey-turning, gold-turning light. The shadow of the tree fell abruptly across the dew and ghostly birds began to sing among the blue leaves. There was a slow, pleasant movement in the air, scarcely a wind, promising a cool, lovely day. I don't think she ever loved him, 
Gatsby turned round from a window and looked at me challengingly. You must remember old sport. She was very excited this afternoon. He told her those things in a way that frightened her. They made it look as if I was some kind of cheap sharper. And the result was she hardly knew what she was saying. He sat down, gloomily. Of course, she might have loved him just for a minute, when they were first married. And loved me more even then. Don't you see? Suddenly, he came out with a curious remark. In any case, he said, it was just personal. What could you make of that? Except the suspect that some intensity in his conception of the affair that couldn't be measured. He came back from France when Tom and Daisy were still on their wedding trip and made a miserable but irresistible journey to Louisville on the last of his army's pay. He sat there for a week, walking the streets with their footsteps, where they clicked together through the November night and revisiting the other white places to which they'd driven their white car. Just as Daisy's house had always seemed to him more mysterious and gay than other houses, so his idea of the city itself, even though she was gone from it, was pervaded with a melancholy beauty. He left feeling that if he'd searched harder, he might have found her, that he was leaving her behind. The day coach, and he was penniless now, was hot. He went out to the open vestibule and sat down on a folding chair, and the station slid away and the backs of unfamiliar buildings moved by. Then out into the spring fields, where a yellow trolley raced them for a minute with people in it, who once might have been pale magic of her face along the casual street. The track curved and Nell saw it was going away from the sun, which, as it sank lower, seemed to spread itself in benediction over the vanishing city where she'd drawn her breath. He stretched his hand out desperately, as if to snatch only a wisp of air, to save a fragment of the spot that she'd made lovely for him. But it was all going by too fast now for his blurred eyes, and he knew that he'd lost a part of it. The freshest and the best. Forever. It was nine o'clock when he finished breakfast and went out onto the porch. The night had made a sharp difference in the weather and there was an autumn flavour in the air. The gardener, the last one of Gatsby's former servants, came to the foot of the steps. I'm going to drain the pool today, Mr. Gatsby. Leaves will start falling pretty soon. And then there's always trouble with the pipes. Don't do it today, Gatsby answered. He turned to me apologetically. You know, old sport, never used that pool all summer. I looked at my watch and sat up. Twelve minutes to my train. I didn't want to go to the city. I wasn't worth a decent stroke of work, but it was more than that. I didn't want to leave Gatsby. I missed that train, and then another, before I could get myself away. I'll call you up, I said, finally. Please do, old sport. I'll call you about noon. We walked slowly down the steps. I suppose Daisy will call too, he looked at me anxiously as if he hoped I'd collaborate this. I suppose so. Well, goodbye. We shook hands and I started away. Just before I reached the hedge, I remembered something and turned round. There are a rotten crowd, I shouted across the lawn. They're worth the whole damn bunch put together. I'm always glad I said that. It was the only compliment I ever gave him, because I disapproved of him from beginning to end. First, he nodded politely, and then his face broke into the radiant and understanding smile, as if we'd been ecstatic cahoots on that fact all the time. His gorgeous pink rag of a suit made a bright spot of colour against the white steps, and I thought of the night when I first came to his ancestral home three months before. 
the lawn and drive had been crowded with the faces of those who guessed at his corruption. And he had stood in those steps, concealing his incorruptible dream as he waved them goodbye. I thanked him for his hospitality. We were always thanking him for that. I and the others. Goodbye, I called. I enjoyed breakfast, Gatsby. But in the city, I tried for a while to list the quotations on an indeterminable amount of stock, and then I fell asleep in my swivel chair. Just before noon, the phone woke me, and I started up with sweat breaking out over my forehead. It was Jordan Baker. She often called me up at this hour because of the uncertainty of her own movements between hotels and clubs and private houses made her hard to find in any other way. Usually her voice came over the wire as something fresh and cool, as if a divot from a green golf links had come sailing into the office window, but this morning it seemed harsh and dry. I've left Daisy's house, she said. I'm at Hampstead, and I'm going down to Southampton this afternoon. Possibly because I'd been tactful to leave Daisy's house, but the act annoyed me, and her next remark made me rigid. You weren't so nice to me last night. How could it have mattered then? Silence for a moment, then. However, I want to see you. I want to see you, too. Suppose I don't go to Southampton and come into town this afternoon. No, I don't think this afternoon. Very well. It's impossible this afternoon. Various... And we talked like that for a while. And then abruptly, we weren't talking any longer. I don't know which of us hung up with a sharp click, but I do know I didn't care. I couldn't have talked to her across a tea table that day if I'd never talked to her again in this world. I called Gatsby's house a few minutes later, but the line was busy. I tried four times. Finally, an exasperated central told me that the wire was being kept open for a long distance from Detroit. Taking out my timetable, I drew a small circle around a 350 train. Then I leaned back in my chair and tried to think. It was just noon. When I passed the ash heaps on the train that morning, I'd crossed deliberately to the other side of the car. I suppose there'd be a curious crowd around there all day, with little boys searching for dark spots in the dust. Some grandiose man telling over and over what had happened. Until it became less and less real, even to him, and he could tell it no longer. And Myrtle Wilson's tragic achievement was forgotten. Now, I want to go back a little and tell what happened at the garage after we left there the night before. They had difficulty in locating the sister, Catherine. She must have broken a rule against drinking that night, for when she arrived she was stupid with liquor and unable to understand that the ambulance had already gone to flushing. When they convinced her of this, she immediately fainted, as if that was the intolerable part of the affair. Someone, kind or curious, took her in his car and drove her in the wake of her sister's body. Until long after midnight, a changing crowd lapped up against the front of the garage, while George Wilson rocked himself back and forth on the couch inside. For a while, the door of the office was open, and everyone who came into the garage glanced irresistibly through it. Finally, someone said that it was a shame, and closed the door. Michaelis and several other men were there with him. First, four or five men. Later, two or three. Still later... Michaelis had to ask the last stranger to wait there 15 minutes longer while he went back to his own place and made a pot of coffee. After that, he stayed there alone with Wilson until dawn. About three o'clock, the quality of Wilson's own coherent muttering had changed. He grew quieter and began to talk about the yellow car. 
he announced that he'd found a way of finding out who that yellow car belonged to. And then he blurted out a couple of months ago his wife had come in from the city with her face bruised and her nose swollen. But when he heard himself say this, he flinched and began to cry. Oh my God, again, in that groaning voice. Achilles made a clumsy attempt to distract him. How long have you been married, George? Come on there, try and sit still a minute and answer my question. How long have you two been married? Twelve years. Ever had any children? Come on, George, sit still. I asked you a question. Did you ever have any children? The hard brown beetles kept thudding against a dull light, and whenever Michaelis heard a car go tearing up along the road outside, it sounded to him like a car that hadn't stopped a few hours before. He didn't like to go into the garage, because the workbench was stained where the body had been lying, so he moved uncomfortably around the office. He knew every object in it before morning. And from time to time, he sat down beside Wilson, trying to keep him more quiet. Have you got a church you go to sometimes, George? Maybe even if you haven't been there for a long time. Maybe I could call up a church and get a priest to come over and he could talk to you, see? I don't belong to any. You ought to have a church, George, for times like this. You must have gone to church once. Didn't you get married in a church? Listen, George, listen to me. Didn't you ever get married in a church? That was a long time ago. The effort of answering broke the rhythm of his rocking. For a moment he was silent. Then the same half-knowing, half-bewildered look came back into his faded eyes. Look in the drawer there, he said, pointing at the desk. Which drawer? That drawer. That one. Achilles opened the drawer nearest his hand. There was nothing in it but a small, expensive dog leash, made of leather and braided silver. It was apparently new. This? he inquired, holding it up. Wilson stared and nodded. I found it yesterday afternoon. She tried to tell me about it, but I knew it was something funny. You mean your wife bought it? She had it wrapped in tissue paper on her bureau. McKeelis didn't see anything odd about this, and he gave Wilson a dozen reasons why his wife might have bought the dog leash. But conceivably, Wilson had heard some of these same explanations before, from Myrtle, because he began saying, oh my god, again in a whisper. His comforter left several explanations in the air. Then he killed her said Wilson. His mouth dropped open suddenly. Who did? I have a way of finding out. You're morbid, George, said his friend. This has been a strain to you and you don't know what you're saying. You better try and sit still. Stay quiet till morning. He murdered her. It was an accident, George. Wilson shook his head. His eyes narrowed and his mouth widened slightly with the ghost of a superior. Hmm. I suppose... No. I know, he said definitively. I'm one of those trusting fellas and I don't think any harm to nobody. But when I get to know a thing about it, it was the man in that car. She ran out to speak to him and he wouldn't stop. Achilles had seen this too, but it hadn't occurred to him that there was any special significance in it. He believed that Mrs. Wilson had been running away from her husband rather than trying to stop any particular car. How could she have been like that? She's a deep one, said Wilson, as if that answered the question. No. He began to rock again, and Michaela stood twisting the leash in his hand. Maybe you've got some friend that I could telephone for, George? There was a forlorn hope. He was almost sure that Wilson had no friends. 
There was not enough of him for his wife. He was glad a little later when he noticed a change in the room, a blue quickening by the window, and realised the dawn wasn't far off. About five o'clock it was blue enough outside to snap off the light. Wilson's glazed eyes turned to the ash heaps, where small grey clouds took on fantastic shapes and scurried here and there in the faint dawn wind. I spoke to her, he muttered after a long silence, and told her she might fool me, but she couldn't fool God. I took her to the window, and with an effort he got up and walked to the rear window and leaned with his face pressed against it. And I said, God knows what you've been doing, everything you've been doing. You may fool me, but you can't fool God. Standing behind him, Achilles saw with a shock that he was looking at the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, who had just emerged, keel and enormous, from the dissolving night. God sees everything, repeated Wilson. That's an advertisement, Achilles assured him. Something made him turn away from the window and look back into the room. But Wilson stood there a long time, his face close to the window pane, nodding in the twilight. By six o'clock, Michaelis was worn out and grateful for the sound of a car stopping outside. It was one of the watchers of the night before who'd promised to come back, so he cooked breakfast for three, where he and the other man ate together. Wilson was quieter now, and Michaelis went home to sleep. When he awoke four hours later and hurried back to the garage, Wilson was gone. His movements, he was on foot all the time, were afterward traced to Port Roosevelt and then the Gads Hill, where he bought a sandwich that he didn't eat and a cup of coffee. He must have been tired and walking slowly, but he didn't reach Gads Hill until noon. Thus far there was no difficulty in accounting for his time. There were boys who had seen a man acting sort of crazy, and motorists at whom he'd stared oddly from the side of the road. Then for three hours he disappeared from view. The police, on the strength of what he'd said to Michaelis, that he had a way of finding out, supposedly he'd spent that time going from garage to garage thereabout inquiring for a yellow car. On the other hand, no garage man who had seen him after ever came forward. Perhaps he had an easier, surer way of finding out what he wanted to know. By half two he was in West Egg, when he asked someone the way to Gatsby's house. So by that time, he knew Gatsby's name. At two o'clock, Gatsby put on his bathing suit, and left word with the butler that if anyone phoned, word was to be brought to him at the pool. He stopped at the garage for a pneumatic mattress that amused his guests during the summer. The chauffeur helped him to pump it out. Then he gave instructions that the open car wasn't to be taken out under any circumstances. And this was strange because the front right fender needed repair. Gatsby shouldered the mattress and started for the pull. Once he stopped and shifted a little, and the chauffeur asked him if he needed help. But he shook his head and in a moment disappeared among the yellowing trees. No telephone message arrived, but the butler went without his sleep and waited for it until four o'clock, until long after there was anyone to give it to if it came. I have an idea that if Gatsby himself didn't believe it would come, and perhaps no longer cared. If that was true, he must have felt that he had lost the old warm world, paid a high price for living too long with a single dream. He must have looked up at an unfamiliar sky, through frightening leaves and shivered, as he found what was a grotesque thing of roses, and how raw the sunlight was upon the scarcely created grass. A new world, material without being real, where poor ghosts, breathing dreams like air, drifted fortuitously about, 
like that ashen, fantastic figure gliding toward him through the unforced trees. The chauffeur, he was one of Wolfsheim's protégés, heard the shots. Afterwards, he could only say that he hadn't thought anything much about them. I drove from the station directly to Gatsby's house and was rushing anxiously up the front steps. It was the first thing that alarmed anyone. But they knew then, I firmly believe. With scarcely a word said, four of us, the chauffeur, butler, gardener and I hurried down to the pool. There was a faint, barely perceptible movement of the water as the fresh flow from one end urged its way out towards the drain at the other. With little ripples that were hardly the shadows of waves, the laden mattress moved irregularly down the pool. A small gust of wind that scarcely corrugated the surface was enough to disturb its accidental course with its accidental burden. The touch of a cluster of leaves revolved around it slowly, tracing, like the leg of transit, thin red circle in the water. It was after we started with Gatsby towards the house that the gardener saw Wilson's body a little way off in the grass, and the holocaust was complete. Chapter 9 After two years I remember the rest of that day, and the night, and the next day, only as an endless drill of police and photographers and used men moving in and out of Gatsby's front door. A rope stretched across the main surface and a policeman by it kept out of curious. The little boys soon discovered that they could enter through my yard and there were always a few of them clustered up in mud across the pool. Someone with a positive manner, perhaps a detective, used the expression madman as he bent over Wilson's body that afternoon. And the adventitious authority of his voice set the key for the newspaper records the next morning. Most of these reports were a nightmare. Grotesque, circumstantial, eager and untrue. With Michaelis's testimony at the inquest brought to light Wilson's suspicions of his wife, I thought the whole tale would shortly be served up in the race he'd need. But Catherine, who might have said anything, didn't say a word. She showed a surprising amount of character about it too. Looked at the corner with determined eyes under that corrected brow of hers, and swore that her sister had never seen Gatsby, that her sister was completely happy with her husband, that his sister had been into no mischief whatsoever. She convinced herself of it, and cried into her handkerchief, as if the very suggestion was more than she could endure. So, Wilson was reduced to a man deranged by grief, noted that the case might remain open in its simplest form, and it rested there. But all this part of it seemed remote and unessential. I found myself on Gatsby's side, and alone. From the moment I telephoned news of the catastrophe to West Egg Village, every surmise about him, every practical question, was referred to me. At first I was surprised and confused. Then, as he lay in his house and didn't move or breathe or speak, hour upon hour, it grew upon me that I was responsible, because no one else was interested. Interested, I mean, with that intense personal interest which everyone has some vague right at the end. I called up Daisy half an hour after we found him. Called her instinctively and without hesitation. But she and Tom had gone away early that afternoon and taken baggage with them. Left no address? No. Did they say when they'd be back? No. Any idea where they are? How I could reach them? Don't know. Can't say. I wanted to get somebody for him. 
I wanted to go into the room where he lay and reassure him. I'll get somebody for you, Gatsby. Don't worry. Just trust me and I'll get somebody for you. Mayor Wilshim's name wasn't in the phone book. The butler gave me his office address on Broadway and I called information. But by the time I had the number, it was long after five and no one answered the phone. Will you ring again? I rang three times. It's very important. I'm sorry, but there's no one there. I went back into the dressing room and thought for an instant that there were chance visitors. All these official people who'd suddenly filled it. But though they drew back the sheet and looked at Gatsby with shocked eyes, his protest continued in my brain. Look here, old sport. You've got to get somebody for me. You've got to try hard. Can't go through this alone. Someone started to ask me questions, but I broke away and going upstairs looked hastily through the unlocked parts of his desk. He never told me definitively that his parents were dead. But there was nothing. Only the picture of Dan Cody, a token of forgotten violence, staring down from the wall. Next morning, I sent the butler to New York with a letter to Wolfsheen, who asked for information and asked him to come on the next train. That request seemed superfluous when I wrote it. I was sure he'd start when he saw the newspapers, just as I was sure that there'd be a wire from Daisy before noon. But neither a wire nor Mr. Wolfsheen arrived. No one arrived, except more police, photographers, and newspaper men. When the butler brought back Wolfsheen's answer, I began to have a feeling of defiance of scornful solidarity between Gatsby and me, and against the law. Dear Mr. Carraway, this has been one of the most terrible shocks of my life to me, and I can hardly believe that it is true at all. Such a mad act as that man did should make us all think. I cannot come down now as I'm tied up in some very important business. I cannot get mixed up in this thing now. If there's anything I can do a little later, let me know in a letter by Edgar. I hardly know where I am when I hear about a thing like this, and I'm completely knocked down in the night. Yours truly, Mayor Wilshin. And then hastily addended underneath. Let me know about the funeral, etc. I do not know his family at all. When the phone rang that afternoon and long distance said Chicago was calling, I thought this would be Daisy at last. But the connection came through as a man's voice, very thin and far away. This is Slagle speaking. Yes. Hell of a note, isn't it? You get my wire? There hasn't been any wires. Young Park's in trouble, he said rapidly. They picked him up when he handed the bonds over to the counter. Then I got a circular from New York giving him numbers just five minutes before. What do you know about that, eh? You can never tell in these hick times. Hello? I interrupted breathless, breathlessly. Look here. This isn't Mr. Gatsby. Mr. Gatsby's dead. There was a long silence on the other end of the wire, followed by an exclamation, and then a quick squawk as the connection was broken. I think it was on the third day that a telegram signed Henry C. Gatz arrived from a town in Minnesota, and it said only that the sender was leaving immediately and to postpone the funeral until he came. It was Gatsby's father, a solemn old man, very helpless and dismayed, bundled up in a long, cheap bolster against the warm September day. His eyes leaked continuously with excitement, and when I took his bag and umbrella from his hands, it began to pull so incessantly at my sparse grey beard that I had difficulty in getting off his coat. He was on the point of collapse, so I took him into the music room and made him sit down when I sent for something to eat. But he wouldn't eat, and the glass of milk spilled from his trembling hand. 
I saw it in the Chicago newspaper, he said. It was all in the Chicago newspaper. I started right away. I didn't know how to reach you. His eyes see nothing. We've ceased to steer Robert in the room. It was a madman, he said. He must have been mad. Wouldn't you like some coffee? I urged him. I don't want anything. I'm all right now, Mr. Caraway. Well, I'm all right now. Where have they got Jimmy? I took him into the drawing room where his son lay and left him there. Some little boys had come up the steps and were looking into the hall. When I told them who'd arrived, they were reluctantly away. After a little while, Mr. Gatz opened the door and came out. His mouth ajar, his face flushed slightly, his eyes leaking isolated and unpunctual tears. He'd reached an age where death no longer had the quality of ghastly surprise. And when he looked about him now for the first time and saw the height and splendour of the hall, and the great rooms opening up from other rooms, his grief began to be mixed with an odd pride. I helped him to a bed upstairs, where he took off his coat and vest, and I told him all the arrangements had been deferred until he came. I didn't know what you'd want. Mr. Gatsby? Gats is my name. Mr. Gats. I thought you might want to take the body west. He shook his head. Jimmy always liked it better east. He was up to his position in the east. Were you a friend of my boys, Mr... We were close friends. He had a big future before him, you know. He was only a young man, but he had a lot of brain power here. He touched his head impressively, and I nodded. If he'd have lived, he'd have been a great man. A man like James J. Hill. He'd have helped build up this country. That's true, I said uncomfortably. He fumbled at the embroidered coverlet, trying to take it from the bed, and lay down stiffly, and was instantly asleep. That night, an obviously frightened person called up and demanded to know who I was before he would give his name. This is Mr. Carraway, I said. Oh, he sounded relieved. This is Mr. Clipspringer. I was relieved too, for that seemed to promise another friend at Gatsby's grave. I didn't want to be in the papers and draw a sightseeing crowd, so I'd been calling up a few people myself. They were hard to find. The funeral's tomorrow, I said, three o'clock, here at the house. I wish you'd tell anybody who'd be interested. Oh, I will, he broke out hastily. Of course, I'm not likely to see anybody, but if I do. His tone was suspicious. Of course, you'll be there yourself. Well, I'll certainly try. What I called up about is... Wait a minute, I interrupted. How about saying you'll come? Well, the fact is, uh, the truth of the matter is that I'm staying with some people up here in Greenwich, and they rather expect me to be with them tomorrow. In fact, there's a sort of picnic or something, and of course I'll do my best to get away. I yelled out and unrestrained, huh? And he must have heard me, for he went on nervously. What I called up about was a pair of shoes I left there. I wonder if it'd be too much trouble to maybe have the butler send them on. You see, they're my tennis shoes, and I'm sort of helpless without them. My address is car of BF. I didn't hear the rest of the name, because I hung up the receiver. After that, I felt a certain shame for Gatsby. One gentleman to whom I telephoned implied that he had got what he deserved. However, that was my fault, for he was one of those who used to sneer most bitterly at Gatsby and the courage of Gatsby's liquor and I should have known better than to call him. The morning of the funeral, I went up to New York to see Mr. Mayor Wilshing. 
I couldn't seem to reach him in any other way. The door that I pushed open on the advice of the elevator boy was marked the Swastika Holding Company. And at first, there didn't seem to be anyone inside. But when I shouted hello several times in vain, an argument broke out behind a partition, and presently a lovely Jew appeared at an interior door and scrutinised me with black, hostile eyes. Nobody's in, she said. Mr. Wilfsheem's gone to Chicago. The first part of this was obviously untrue, for someone had begun to whistle the rosary, tunelessly, inside. Please say that Mr. Garroy wants to see him. I can't get him back from Chicago, can I? At this voice, unmistakably Wolfsheim's, called Stella, from the other side of the door. Leave your name on the desk, she said quickly. I'll give it to him when he gets back. But I know he's there. She took a step toward me and began to slide her hands indignantly up and down her hips. You young men think you can force your way in here any time, she scolded. We're getting sick and tired of it. When I say he's in Chicago, he's in Chicago. I mentioned Gatsby. Oh, she looked at me again. Will you just... What was your name? She vanished. In a moment, Mayor Wilfsheim stood sullenly in the doorway, holding up both hands. He drew me into his office, remarking in a reverent voice that it was a sad time for all of us, and offered me a cigar. My memory goes back to when I first met him, he said. A young major just out of the army and covered all over with medals that he got in war. He was so hard up that he'd struggled to keep on wearing his uniform because he couldn't buy some regular clothes. First time I saw him was when he came into Weinbrenner's pull room, 43rd Street, and asked for a job. He hadn't eaten anything for a couple of days. Come on, have some lunch with me, I said. He had more than four dollars worth of food in that half hour. Did you start him in on business, I inquired. Start him? I made him. Oh. I raised him up out of nothing, right out of the gutter. I saw right away he was a fine-appearing, gentlemanly young man. When he told me he'd been in Oxford, I knew I could use him good. I got him to join the American Legion, and he used to stand high there. Right off, he did some work for a client of mine up in Albany. We were so thick that it was in everything. He held up two bulbless fingers, always together. I wondered if this partnership had included the World Series transactions in 1919. And now, he's dead, I said after a moment. And you were his closest friend, so I know you'll want to come to his funeral this afternoon. I'd like to come. Well then, come. The air in his nostrils quivered slightly, and he shook his head as his eyes filled up with tears. I can't do it. I can't get mixed up in it, he said. There's nothing to get mixed up in. It's all over now. When a man gets killed, I never like to get mixed up in it in any way. I help out. When I was a young lad, it was different. If a friend of mine died, no matter how, I struck with them to the end. You might think that's sentimental, but I mean it. To the bitter end. I saw that for some reason of his own he was determined not to come, so I stood up. Are you a college man? He inquired suddenly. For a moment I thought he was going to suggest a negotiation, but he only nodded and shook my hands. Let us learn to show our friendship for a man when he is alive, and not after he's dead, he suggested. After that, my own rule was to let everything alone. When I left his office, the sky had turned dark, and I got back to West Egg in a drizzle. After changing my clothes, I went next door and found Mr. Gatz walking up and down excitedly in the hall. His pride in his son and in his son's possessions was continually increasing. Now he had something to show me. 
Jimmy sent me this picture. He took out the wallet with trembling fingers. Look here. It was a photograph of the house. Cracked in the corners and dirty with many hands. He pointed at every detail to me eagerly. Look there. And then he sought admiration from my eyes. He had shown it so often that I think it was more real to him now than the house itself. Jimmy sent it to me. I think it's a very pretty picture. It shows up very well. Very well. Have you seen him lately? He came out to me two years ago. Brought me the house that I live in now. Of course, we were broke up when he ran off from home. Now I see there was a reason for it. He knew he had a big future in front of him. And ever since he was a success, he was very generous with me. He seemed reluctant to put away the picture. Held on to it for another moment. Lingeringly before my eyes. Then he returned the wallet and pulled from his hip a ragged old copy of a book called Hopalong Cassidy. Look here. This is a book he had when he was just a boy, and it shows you. He opened up the back cover and turned it around for me to see. I came across this book by accident, said the old man. It just shows you, doesn't it? It just shows you. Jimmy was bound to get ahead. He always had some sense of resolve of this thing or another. Do you notice what he's got about improving his mind? He was always great for that. He told me I looked like a hog once and I beat him for it. He was reluctant to close the book, reading each item aloud and then looking eagerly at me. I think he rather expected me to copy down the list for my own use. A little before three, the Lutherian minister arrived from Flushing and began to look involuntarily out the windows for other cars. And so did Gatsby's father. And as the time passed, and the servants came in and stood waiting in the hall. His eyes began to blink anxiously when he spoke of the rain in a worried, uncertain way. The minister glanced several times at his watch, so I took him inside and asked him to wait for half an hour. But it wasn't any use. Nobody came. About five o'clock, our procession of three cars reached the cemetery and stopped in a thick drizzle beside the gate. First, the motor hearse, horribly black and wet, and then Mr. Gatz, and the minister and me in the limousine. And a little later, four or five servants and the postman from West Egg, and Gatsby station wagon, all wet to the skin. As we started through the gate to the cemetery, I heard a car stop, and the sound of someone splashing after us at a soggy ground. I looked around. It was the man with the old glasses, who had found Marvel lean over Gatsby's books in the library one night three months before. I'd never seen him since. I don't know how he knew about the funeral or even his name. The rain poured down his thick glasses and he took them off and wiped them to see the protesting canvas unrolled for Gatsby's grave. I tried to think about Gatsby then for a moment, but he was already too far away. And I could only remember, without resentment, that Daisy hadn't sent a message or a single flower. Dimly I heard someone murmur, Blessed are the dead that the rain falls on. And the all-eyed man said, Amen to that, in a brave voice. We straggled down quickly through the range of the cars. Our eyes spoke to me by the gate. I couldn't get into the house, he remarked. Neither could anybody else. Go on, he said. Why? My God, they used to go there by the hundreds. He took off his glasses and wiped them again, outside and in. That person of a bitch. One of my most vivid memories is of coming back west from prep school and later from college at Christmas time. 
Those who went farther than Chicago would gather in the old dim Union Station at 6 o'clock of December evening with a few Chicago friends, already caught up in their own holiday gaieties. They bid them a hasty goodbye. I remember the fur coats of the girls returning from Miss This or That's character, chattering the frozen breath, and the hands were moving overhead as we caught sight of the old acquaintances and the matchings of invitations. Are you going to Ordways? The Hersey's? The Schlutzes? And the long green tickets clasped tight in our gloved hands. And the last murky yellow cars of the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad looking cheerful as Christmas itself on the tracks beside the gate. When we pulled out into the winter night, and the real snow, our snow, began to stretch out beside us and twinkle against the windows, and the dim lights of small Wisconsin stations moved past. A sharp, wild brace came suddenly into the air. We drew in deep breaths of it as we walked back from dinner through the cold vestibules, utterly aware of our identity within this country for one strange hour, before we melted indistinguishably into it again. That's my Middle West. Not the wheat, or the prairies, or the lost sweet towns, but the thrilling returning trains of my youth, and the street lamps, and the sleigh bells, and the frosty dark, and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows in the snow. I'm part of that, a little solemn with the feel of those long winters, a little complacent from growing up in the Caraway House in a city where dwellings are still called through decades by a family's name. I see now that this has been a story of the West after all. Tom and Gatsby, Daisy and Jordan and I, we're all Westerners, and perhaps we possess some deficiency in common which made us all subtly unadaptable to Eastern life. Even when the East excited me the most, even when I was the most keenly aware of its superiority over to the bored, sprawled, swollen towns beyond the Ohio, with their indeterminable inquisitions which spared only the children and the very old. Even then it always had for me a quality of distortion. West Egg, especially, still figures in warm, fantastic dreams. I see it as a night seen by El Greco. A hundred houses, at once conventional and grotesque, crouching under a sullen, overhanging sky in a lustreless moon. In the foreground, four solemn men in dress suits are walking along the sidewalk, with a stretcher on what lies a drunken woman in a white evening dress. Her hand, which dangles over the side, sparkles cold with jewels. Gravely, the men turn in at a house. The wrong house. But no one knows the woman's name, and no one cares. After Gatsby's death, the East was haunted for me like that, distorted beyond my eyes' power of correction. So when the blue smoke the leaves was in the air and the wind blew the wet laundry stiff on the line, I decided to come back home. There was one thing to be done before I left, an awkward, unpleasant thing that perhaps better have been left alone. But I wanted to leave things in order and not just trust the obliging and indifferent sea to sweep my refuge away. I saw Jordan Baker, and talked over and around what had happened to us together, and what had happened afterward to me. And she lay perfectly still, listening, in a big chair. She was dressed to play golf, and I remember thinking that she looked like a good illustration. Her chin raised a little jauntily, her hair the colour of an autumn leaf, her face the same brown tint as the fingerless glove on her knee. When I'd finished, she told me with a comment that she was engaged to another man. I doubted that. 
There were several she could have married at the nod of her head, but I pretended to be surprised. Just a minute I wondered if I wasn't making a mistake. And then I thought it all over again quickly and got up to say goodbye. Nevertheless, you did throw me over, said Jordan suddenly. You threw me over the telephone. I don't give a damn about you now, but it was a new experience for me, and I felt a little dizzy for a while. We shook hands. Oh, do you remember, she added, conversation we had once about driving a car? Why, not exactly. You said a bad driver was only safe until she met another bad driver. Well, I met another bad driver, didn't I? I mean, it was careless of me to make such a wrong guess. I thought you were a rather honest, straightforward person. I thought it was your secret pride. I'm 30, I said. I'm five years too old to lie to myself and call it honour. She didn't answer. Angry and half in love with her, and tremendously sorry. I turned away. One afternoon, late in October, I saw Tom Buchanan. He was walking ahead of me along Fifth Avenue in his alert, aggressive way. His hands out a little from his body as if to fight off the interference. His head moving sharply here and there, adapting itself to his restless eyes. Just as I showed up to avoid overtaking him, he stopped and began frowning into the windows of a jewellery store. Suddenly he saw me and walked back, holding out his hand. What's the matter, Nick? Do you object to shaking hands with me? Yes. You know what I think of you. You're crazy, Nick, he said quickly. Crazy as hell. I don't know what the matter is with you. Tom, inquired. What did you say to Wilson that afternoon? He stared at me without a word, and I knew I had guessed right about those missing hours. I started to turn away, but he took a step after me and grabbed my arm. I told him the truth, he said. He came to the door while we were getting ready to leave, and I sent down word that we weren't in. He tried to force his way upstairs. He was crazy enough to kill me if I hadn't told him who owned the car. His hand was on a revolver in his pocket every minute he was in the house. He broke off defiantly. What if I did tell him? The fellow had it coming to him. He threw dust into your eyes just like he did Daisy. But he was a tough one. He ran over Merle like he'd run over a dog and never even stopped his car. There was nothing I could say, except the one unutterable fact that it wasn't true. And if you think I don't have my share of suffering, look here. When I went to give up that flat and saw that damn box of dog biscuits sitting there on the sideboard, I sat down and cried like a baby. By God, it was awful. I couldn't forgive him, or like him. But I saw that what I'd done was this. To him, it was entirely justified. It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness, or whatever it was that kept them together, and let other people clean up the messes that they'd made. I shook hands with them, but was silly not to, for I felt suddenly as though I were talking to a child. Then he went into the jewellery store to buy a pearl necklace, or perhaps only a pair of cuff buttons. And rid of my provincial squeamishness forever. Gatsby's house was still empty when I left. The grass on his lawn had actually grown as long as mine now. One of the taxi drivers in the village never took a fare past the entrance gate without stopping for a minute and pointing inside. Perhaps it was he who drove Daisy and Gatsby over to East Egg the night of the accident. Perhaps he'd made a story about it all of his own.
I didn't want to hear it. And I avoided him when I got off the train. I spent my Saturday nights in New York because those gleaming, dazzling parties of his were with me so vividly that I could still hear the music and laughter. Faint and incessant from his garden. And the cars going up and down that drive. One night I did hear a material car there. and saw its lights stop at his front steps, but I didn't investigate. Probably it was some final guest who'd been away at the ends of the earth and didn't know that the party was over. On the last night, with my trunk packed and my car sold to the grocer, I went over and looked at that huge and coherent failure of a house once more. On the white steps, an obscene word, scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick, stood clearly in the moonlight, and I erased it, drawing my shoe raspingly along the stone. Then I wandered down to the beach and sprawled out on the sand. Most of the big shore places were closed now, and there were hardly any lights except the shadowy, moving glow of a ferry boat across the sand. As the moon rose higher, the inessential houses began to melt away, till gradually I became aware of the old island here that flowered once for the Dutch sailor's eyes. A fresh, green breast of the new world. Its vanished trees, the trees that had made way for Gatsby's house, had once pandered in whispers to the last and greatest of all human dreams. For a transitory enchanted moment, man must held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled into an aesthetic contemplation he either not understood nor feared, face to face for the last time in history with something commensurate to his own capacity for wonder. And as I sat there brooding on the old unknown word, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He'd come a long way to this blue lawn, and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly feel to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him. Somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city, the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. Eluded at us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow, we will run faster. Stretch out our arms further, and on one fine morning. And so, we beat on. Boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. What an interesting line. It's highlighted. It's the only one that's highlighted in this book. So we beat on. Boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. I don't know what my uncle's trying to tell me. Maybe this bit isn't for me. This bit's for him. I hope he's okay. But that's where we need to leave this evening's story. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope that whenever you sleep tonight, you sleep well. You deserve that. <laughs>